Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at determinism and free will. With me is Dr. Ruth Kastner, who is a philosopher, a member of the Foundations of Physics group at the University of Maryland, College Park. She is the author of The Transactional Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics, The Reality of Possibility, as well as Understanding Our Unseen World, Solving Quantum Riddles, and Adventures in Quantum Land, Exploring Our Unseen Reality. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. It's great to be here. As I understand it, the basic idea behind determinism is very simple. It's that every event has a cause. Right. Every uh, And there's a single unique cause for every event that happens, and they're, they're tied together in that mm-hmm. way. A single cause, <clears throat> because it would seem to me, uh, Aristotle, I think, pointed out that every event has four, at least four different causes. He meant, yes, he had different understandings of the different type of causes mm-hmm. that you could have. But yes, so you're, you're right. There are different notions of causation that you could, you could look at. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true, yes. And, and, you know, when I was in graduate school, I I did have a philosopher as my dissertation chairman who told me that the whole notion of causality is considered very problematic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is indeed. Different definitions and efforts to try to track it down by looking at the world around you, which, of course, as David Hume pointed out, you have trouble doing. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I I once had an argument with a a skeptic of parapsychology. He said that parapsychology obviously is a pseudoscience because it violates the law of causality. And Uh uh, Uh I I responded to him by saying, I don't think that's a scientific law. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's kind of an assumption that people make. It's one of the ground rules that is not really all that well established. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bertrand Russell was critical of the idea, and it's it's more of a conceptual kind of pattern that that we think we see in the world, but you know, it's hard to find. It really mm-hmm. is hard to find. I mean, I mean, in classical physics, Newtonian physics, uh, the idea is like billiard balls: one particle knocks against another one, and it moves uh, accordingly. Right, and that's kind of the picture I was thinking about when I ca- talked about a unique cause for mm-hmm. an event. Uh, in that case, the sort of mechanistic picture where you've got your billiard balls and you've got a ball, a specific ball begins to move because it was hit by another ball and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, there are a lot of systems that, that seem to behave that way. Yes. But, uh, of course, Aristotle, <clears throat> you know, thousands of years ago, was looking at something different than that when he, he talked about... He was. Yeah, I mean, well, of course, the notion of cause that he uh, worked with that is not part of standard uh, 
science, uh, modern science at all, is the notion of final cause, mm -hmm. which was an idea. He would say things like a, a rock falls because it's getting to its, it's proceeding to its natural place. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a purposeful idea, yeah. which isn't, you know, part of modern science. In, in, that, in today, that <laughs> idea would be called teleological, right. and it is ruled out generally. Well, it's assumed to be not a scientific notion. Though I have to say, I, in my years in graduate school, one of my other advisors was a professor of management science. And he said, in management science, we have goals, we have purpose, we have teleology, it's not a problem. And that's why things happen, because yeah. we make them happen to achieve those goals. Yeah, I mean, every so, uh, time you get in your car and drive somewhere, uh, you have a destination in mind. Right, and right. that would be like, uh, almost equivalent, I think, to Aristotle's final cause. Yes, it's, there was intent there. There's mm -hmm. a purpose to be served, and that's why your behavior came about, because mm -hmm. you chose it. And so, But yeah. in quantum physics, <clears throat> we have a, a notion of events uh, for which there is no identifiable cause. Right. We have that indeterminism. We mm -hmm. have what Einstein called playing dice. Yeah. We have what people sometimes talk about as randomness. And and what we have is a situation where, given an initial setup of preparation, however you want to uh, set up your experiment, uh, when we're working with these these very small quantum systems for a, a, an identical preparation, and what we would say it, it's prepared in the same state, it can end up at different places. It can end up with different outcomes, and that theory doesn't give us any cause, mm -hmm. no mechanistic, deterministic cause for why mm -hmm. our system ends up in one place as opposed to another. All we have are these probabilities. Mm -hmm. So some people in in the world of physics uh, postulate hidden variables in order to introduce causality at that point. Exactly right. They're they're missing. They they feel as though there should be an explanation for uh, some kind of a mechanistic causal explanation for why their system ended up in mm -hmm. one outcome or the other. Yeah. I mean, for example, as I understand it, if you have a Geiger counter that is counting uh, particles that are being emitted from a radioactive substance, uh, we have no way of knowing when any particular particle will be emitted. That's correct. Mm -hmm. it's, it's indeterministic. Uh, it will give you probabilities that uh, for each time, time index, that particle will decay, yeah. but that's all you have, a probability that it will decay at that mm -hmm. time. And, but the actual moment of decay, right. uh, it may, uh, over many such decays, will conform to the probabilistic equation, exactly. but no single uh, instance will. That's correct. I mean, mm -hmm. well, no single instance will... Uh, you won't be able to point to any reason yeah. why that instance happened, why mm -hmm. that decay happened at yeah. that time and not some other time. Mm -hmm. So in, in my early years, uh, when I studied with Arthur Young, who was the, uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, my mentor, the founder of the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in Berkeley back in those years where I was fortunate to live for a while, uh, also the inventor of the Bell helicopter, he maintained, as many other people I think have maintained, that quantum uncertainty uh, is on the outside what free will feels like on the inside. Well, it could be. I mean, certainly if you only have the classical deterministic laws, mm -hmm. then it seems as though all our actions are determined. 
and it, it's hard to reconcile that with free will. Um, on the other hand, if you have quantum theory as a physical law of the way things work in the world, and these microscopic things are behaving this way in this indeterministic way, then s- that seems like it's at least an opening for for genuine freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. Now, I did an interview uh, with another philosopher who who said, "No, you can't." generate free will because uh, quantum processes are random and, and a random process doesn't exhibit free will it follows the, the laws of randomness it's it's truly it's unpredictable and uh, ideally free will would also be unpredictable but uh, that doesn't mean they're equivalent yeah well you know the idea of randomness is um it's there's a subtle issue here because you can have an indeterministic law in the sense that um it it does not follow that causal chain like we've seen with a billiard table or something yeah. but that doesn't it's a, going a step farther to impose on that the idea of Total randomness. Mm-hmm. All we really know is it's, it's underdetermined. The, the, what will happen at any, which outcome you'll get is underdetermined by the theory. The theory doesn't actually say that it's random in the sense of that, that there could be no intent mm-hmm. or no choice. So that's, that's something that people are used to imposing on an indeterministic law, the concept of randomness, mm-hmm. but it has all these connotations of, uh, meaninglessness and, and no entry point for any kind of a choice and that's that's not a necessary conclusion in other words we don't have to say that because we have an indeterministic law mm-hmm. that the processes are random oh I, th- I assumed that they correspond to mathematical tests of randomness well the term random is in a mathematical con context mm-hmm. means purely indeterministic uh-huh. and what I'm what I'm concerned about is this idea of randomness as having a connotation of that you could not cho- choose in any particular mm-hmm. instance the, the subtlety here is that um, the, there's an idea of the principle of sufficient reason mm-hmm. okay so suppose suppose in order to have anything happen there had to be some sort of additional impetus. That isn't part of this law. Okay. It's outside it. Um, then the process would appear to be random or what's thought of mm-hmm. as random. But nevertheless, there would be some impetus that precipitated one result in, in order to have that result occur. And it doesn't necessarily have to violate the statistical law. So there's a little, you know, there, there's, it's a subtle point that mm-hmm. a lot of people think that in order to, to conform to a law, a statistical law, that that there can be no um, additional factor involved in precipitating one outcome oh, or an, uh-huh. over another. But in fact, that's not strictly true. Oh. It's not strictly true. You don't have to violate a statistical law in order to have some other element that's outside the theory to trigger a particular instance. You know, in fact, there's a whole article written about this by Randolph Clark Mm -hmm. um, that addresses this point, this subtle point of, uh, I think it's entitled, um, Can We Choose to Obey the Laws? So it's an examination of this idea of, um, suppose we have a statistical law that is truly indeterministic, can people's behavior still conform to this on a large scale so that so that you never see any violation of the law 
but yet in any given instance they're actually choosing, mm-hmm. and it, and it is consistent. You can you can do that. Yeah. In fact, yeah, which is what my mentor Arthur Young proposed is in right. fact happening. Right. He he would have said, well, we live in a deterministic world on the macro level. Uh, but at the quantum level, it's indeterministic. That allows for free will. So we can have both determinism and free will uh, in that sense. Right. And of course, I mean, in order to have your your will have any effect at all, you have to be able to do things. Yeah. You know, it's meaningless to say, well, I can choose to go have a cup of coffee if you then can't carry it out because there's total chaos, in, you know, in the world. Right. So it has to, at the macroscopic level, it does have to converge to a kind of a, an effective determinism at the macroscopic it's, level. It's required. Right. I mean, otherwise, every time you get into your car and try to start the engine, you're not certain whether the engine will start. Right. Of course, and and from hundreds of years of study, we already know that at the classical macroscopic level, we have this apparent determinism. Yeah. So it's a surprise that mm-hmm. when you go to this micro level, then you find the these strange, you know. Processes. So there were philosophers prior to the twentieth century in, in quantum physics uh, that were strict determinists, like Spinoza for example. Yes. And his philosophy seems strange to me because he seemed to be suggesting that in order to achieve spiritual freedom, all we have to do is acknowledge that we have no freedom and that everything we do is is determined. And ultimately, I think he meant by, by the will of God. Yes, of course, before quantum theory, that was their only choice. In a mm-hmm. way, they had no choice because they really thought that that the world was deterministic. And um, I think of that as kind of a stoic view. Um, and uh, it's it's a little hard to, I mean, I would... I would sort of, I'd have a hard time personally mm-hmm. finding anything enlightening about the idea that that all of my uh, choices and actions are chosen, in a sense, not by me, but by some larger order or mm-hmm. by God or, or whatever. Um, but it's it's a kind of an academic point since yeah. we now have reason to think that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that was a tough situation where they had a lot of um, what I think are kind of convoluted arguments to try to find ro- some people to find room for free will. Although in Spinoza's case, he went the other way, yeah. the other route, and said, "Okay, I don't have free will." And well. There is in philosophy uh, two viewpoints known as compatibilism and incompatibilism regarding the relationship mm-hmm. between free will and determinism. Yeah, um, a compatibilism is the idea that if the world is deterministic or if, if we have some sort of a block world where all events are, are already spoken for and they're already out there, from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's the idea of trying to retain the notion that we have some kind of meaningful free will or freedom of choice in that situation. That's compatibilism. And then incompatibilism is the opposite view that, that if we do really have determinism and, or we have a, a block world where all events are, are determinate, are out there, mm-hmm. that, that in fact we, and we, we cannot have chosen otherwise. And so then what happens is never really up to us in a sense. So that, those are the two competing viewpoints. Now I have heard, uh, it articulated that, uh, and I think this would be sort of a, a compatibilist point of view that if I make a decision and nobody is coercing me to 
to choose differently so that the only deterministic factors are my own preferences, then that could be considered an act of free will. Well, and that's um, a way that a lot of compatibilists want to define the term. Mm -hmm. But um, if you do take seriously the claim that all physical laws are deterministic or that all the events are already there, then it's kind of self-refuting because Mm -hmm. they've already said everything I do is happening because of some law or some events that happened before I was born or because of some events that are already there. And so there's no room there for me to have actually chosen anything by their own, Mm -hmm. uh, by their own claims. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in a totally deterministic world, if we're having this conversation, uh, we don't have any choice but to say what we say. Right, right. There are deterministic laws in place, so the claim is, and uh, those laws are just unfolding what was basically set up incontrovertibly by what events that were in place before we were even born. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, then, we're just like marionettes on a string, yeah. right? We're, we're marionettes, and it's like a marionette saying, hi, I'm choosing to do something, and... No, it's your strings. That so it's mm-hmm. just not really. But but it, I, I gather what you're saying is that anybody familiar with quantum physics can no longer be a strict determinist. Well, actually, they they can. They can have certain models where they want to put in hidden variables. Yeah. So there are deterministic models that are, are efforts to um, take quantum theory and and give an account of why each mm-hmm. measurement outcome happens. And those are actually deterministic theories, like mm-hmm. the Bohmian theory, for instance. Okay. Yeah. Which relies on hidden variables. Right. Which is, is right. kind of a trick. Well, they're adding something to the theory yeah. to get what they'd like to see, to mm-hmm. get what they'd like to see. Which, so. which happens in physics quite a bit. It does. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. But, I mean, the the point is that basically given quantum theory, even though the theory in itself in its most pared-down, purest form, if you will, seems indeterministic, mm-hmm. you can add things to it and, and sort of tinker with it a little and end up with a deterministic model of mm-hmm. quantum theory so that you're eliminating the indeterminacy. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I suppose it's fair to say at least the great bulk of theoretical physicists don't take that route. Yeah, I mean it's it's always hard to know actually. They're constantly <laughs> doing these little surveys, you know, what's uh-huh. your current preferred interpretation and uh-huh. people sometimes change their mind and so I'm you know, I I'm, I'm not even sure I would know what to say, you know, as far as the uh-huh. majority view, but there's certainly a large component of uh-huh. physicists who do take it as indeterministic. Well, and I understand though that a very popular interpretation of quantum physics is the many worlds uh, Everett mm-hmm. uh, Everett and Wheeler's uh, many and worlds. Graham, I think, yeah, uh, and Graham, uh, that would be, I think, in your view, a, a deterministic model. That uh, it just means that every time uh, a quantum event occurs, every possible event also occurs in some invisible realm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Is that a deterministic model or not? I mean, it it takes the sort of deterministic evolution of the quantum state as the only. Evolution. So, mm-hmm. in that sense, it's deterministic, but yet it, it also has all the outcomes occurring. And then, uh, you know, you're, there's versions of each observer, say, in, mm-hmm. in seeing each of these different outcomes. Yeah. I, mean, if, I mean, that theory has always puzzled me because if you look at the quantum wave function, it, it suggests there could be 
millions of, of potential outcomes for any single uh, uh, e event uh, of an electron or a photon being emitted from an atom. That's right. I mean, you're getting into some very big numbers, possibly infinities. Yeah. You're, you're having, and they're splitting who knows how frequently. So, uh, it's a very extravagant kind of ontology. Uh, the other problem I feel with, with that interpretation is that it, it kind of removes the idea of probabilities in a sense that you can't even define a probability if you can't say, uh, you have no way of saying which outcome occurred because they all occur. So if all outcomes occur, then, then how is it meaningful to say that each outcome has a certain probability? Mm -hmm. So it's even hard to apply the usual quantum probability law to that, to that approach because if all outcomes happen, then what, what's the meaning of the probability that, that it will happen? Mm -hmm. It's the probability that you will be observing that outcome. <laughs> but who are you? Yeah. You know, which you are you? Yeah. So it's, it gets into some areas that become ill-defined. But, but it would imply that there might be zillions of versions of each right. individual. Yes. Existing in, in some other parallel universe. Somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which it does seem to be, yeah. Kind of uh, metaphysically heavy. It, it it has an awful lot of assumptions. Well, yeah, I think they would say, "Well, we have very few assumptions, but the ontology is huge." Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. We're, we're going to assume that there's no such thing as measurement, or or that there's no projection, there's no collapse. So they yeah. want to they want to eliminate any additional assumptions around those lines, along those lines. But yet the ontology becomes mm. just really very very burdensome, I think. Well, and I have heard that the, the many worlds interpretation is um, gaining in popularity because people uh, find it as something of a refuge and that they don't have to introduce consciousness as, as an alternative way of collapsing the wave function. Well, I think that uh, the whole notion of collapse in the usual way of looking at the theory is problematic. Mm -hmm. So people w want to not have to think about why we get one outcome. Mm -hmm. And then if they can say, well, we don't just get one outcome, then that takes that problem away. But it does yeah. have other problems. Yeah. And that it has, uh, it, you have to kind of apply a, a, a sort of a pragmatic kind of decoherence approach to that that has certain problems that it, it's a bit circular where people, people try to say that they can get our usual classical world of experience out of it. But in order to do that, they kind of have to smuggle in certain mm -hmm. classical concepts at the very beginning yeah. in order to get, get the kind of splitting that they want. Well, I gather that, um, among science fiction writers, it's a very attractive theory. Oh, well, theory. yes. I mean, you know, it's great for science fiction stories. Yeah. No argument there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's fun to think about parallel realities. Yeah. yeah. Now, your preferred interpretation, the transactional, the relativistic transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics does allow for free will. Well, yes, in, in principle it does because it does have genuine indeterminism and it does have a real form of uh, collapse or reduction of the quantum state is what I liked. The term collapse is kind of a problematic one, mm -hmm. but it allows that one outcome really does become actualized in the macroscopic world, uh, but uh, it's, it's genuinely indeterministic which one will happen. And so in that sense, it allows for free will to enter. Mm-hmm. Although that's not a formal part of my interpretation, but it does allow f allow for that. This interpretation of quantum physics, in fact, every interpretation of quantum physics, really has nothing particular to say about consciousness. 
Not really, no. I mean, it's it's a physical theory, mm-hmm. meaning that it's a theory that was arrived at to to describe things that were puzzling about the world and to try to understand how they worked at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that you know that we're adopting physicalism or something like that, but it's simply a, th- a mathematical a theory of mathematical physics that mm-hmm. that describes uses mathematics to describe regularities that we see and that comes up with a theoretical structure to help you predict things. Mm-hmm. That you're going to find. Yeah. Now, my yeah. friend Saul Paul Sirag, who's been a guest on this channel many times, w- w- would take it a step further. He would say that all the laws of the physical world uh, of quantum physics actually are descriptions of consciousness because that's all that we ever have. Well, yeah. You know, people have have found quantum theory to be evocative of the notion of consciousness to some extent that. That came about because the early quantum pioneers couldn't find any theoretical reason to for finding outcomes, for finding specific outcomes when you had these superpositions and, you know, many possible outcomes, mm-hmm. but you could never account for why we only experienced one. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the usual, the, the, the only response they could find was to say, it's consciousness, mm-hmm. that consciousness is what has allows me to experience only one outcome. Mm-hmm. Now I've argued that's because they were missing part of the physics the in the, the direct action theory that allows you to really say within the theory why one outcome does happen, does occur. Um so that's that's kind of an account within the theory of why we get mm-hmm. our our outcomes, but it doesn't preclude the idea of perception and of course and of conscious perception. Yeah. So that does come in, but it then it becomes kind of free to be explored on its own terms, rather than being what I call kind of a band-aid for uh for the measurement problem. You know, consciousness has been historically brought in as sort of a band-aid for why the cat is not both alive and dead. Well I there's a conscious observer. That collapsed it. But th- that's a very ill-defined account mm-hmm. in terms of where does the consciousness come in and why and what what kind of system counts as a conscious system and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned so. the direct action theory. Yes, and let's we talked about that. that elsewhere. We did, but, but um, let's define it again. Of course. So the transactional interpretation is based on a different kind of theory of the way fields interact. And it's, it's a theory in which emitters and absorbers participate equally in order for there to be any transfer mm. of radiation or a photon or something like that. So that's called the direct action or absorber theory of radiation. Mm-hmm. Why is it called direct action when it seems as if you've got two different um, entities, the emitter and the absorber, as you say, shaking hands, coming together. It would mm-hmm. uh, direct. It's a funny word that historically mm-hmm. was used to mean a kind of action at a distance uh-huh. theory. That's uh-huh. what the word term direct action was kind of a term for action at a distance, which meant it was non-local. Mm-hmm. So the way the fields behave is is called non-local because the fields don't need to have a mediation by a kind of mechanical system yeah. that is the, the, the usual traditional way of modeling fields. It's actually like a bucket brigade. Mm-hmm. And the, the so-called direct action theory doesn't use this bucket brigade. It's a non-local communication between different charges. Well, so, the whole question yeah. of non-locality is, is fascinating and mechanism because we are conditioned to think mechanistically. Yes, we are. 
And we're educated yeah. to think that way. Yeah. Uh, it, I suppose it's fair to say Newtonian physics is almost entirely mechanistic. Right, the clockwork universe. Yeah. And, and people uh, begin, I know when I was an undergraduate and even early years as a graduate student, I had to work hard to not try to explain parapsychological phenomena as some, in, within a mechanistic framework. I'm pretty mm -hmm. convinced at this point that you can't. That mechanistic mm -hmm. frameworks will always break down when it comes to uh, the phenomena of parapsychology. Well, it broke down with respect to atomic behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's why with the, the the early pioneers were faced with these challenges of yeah. of various problems toward the end of the nineteenth century. One of them being the the discrete emission of light from atoms, and they wanted that. They wanted a mechanistic account of that, yeah. and it didn't work. So that's why we have quantum theory. Mm -hmm. And and of course with quantum theory there are still mechanistic ways of trying to approach it because as you say that's we've been we've been marinated in you yeah. know mechanistic concepts and it, it's very hard that's sort of our, our ordinary common sense existence and it's very counterintuitive to think that that maybe at the very subtle level of these quantum systems that in fact things are not mechanistic mm -hmm. so it's it's hard to get used to that idea well and and of course mechanistic is really another way of saying determinant determinant yes right mm -hmm. right yeah deterministic and and um processes that are mediated very uh causally where you can point at any given point in space and time what exactly is going on everything's very localized again like the bucket brigade picture yeah. but if we allow for free will which as you point out uh, quantum physics at least allows for the possibility of free will that if free will exists in the universe somewhere then the, the notion of teleology or purpose is also introduced, wouldn't you say? I think so. I mean, you, you can't really eliminate it. Um, I know that a lot of theoreticians, you know, would not, they would kind of break out in hives at the thought of, you know, having, having that enter into uh, modern science. And you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful about that. But, but certainly once you have room for intent or volition, then Clearly, those are teleological notions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there you have it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, I think the big battleground for this discussion is has to do with evolution. And people who mm -hmm. say evolution is purely the result of, you know, random processes and survival of the fittest. And other people who say, no, there seems to be a, a entelechy or a teleology or, you know, the evolution shows that uh, things are getting more and more complex. Yes. And of course, I'm not at all an evolutionary biologist. So, yeah. you know, I have no particular expertise in that area. But, but clearly we do have kind of a culture clash, don't we? I mean, mm -hmm. we've got, we've got this, this, um, you know, laudable drive to be rigorous and to not get lost into in metaphysical flights of fancy, which is part of that sort of ethos of mechanism, yeah. you know, and and it's a laudable um, goal to be rigorous. But on the other hand, it becomes a box uh, that that did slow down the development of quantum theory in the first place when people were were really uh, hampered by that to an extent where they, they could, they were not imaginative. They mm -hmm. couldn't come up with new ways of thinking and new ways to solve problems. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the door is open to, to consider... 
that there may be intent, there may be volition at some level. Mm-hmm. Well, I have heard people complain that we're not making any real progress in physics, that, you know, mm. we're still sort of stuck with the quantum theory that was developed nearly a hundred years ago. Uh, how do you view that? Um, well, we're not making progress if we keep working with, I think, the, uh, this sort of unilateral picture of the way fields operate mm-hmm. and, and the failure to really solve the measurement problem. Which is often taken as, um, uh, it's gotten to the point where it's the failure to solve the measurement problem, by which I mean account for measurement results mm-hmm. in a, in a theory, in a rigorous way, mm-hmm. has, has become almost an article of faith that, uh, that, that that's something that you should, um, learn to live with and it's the way it should be. That, that it's appropriate to fail to solve the measurement problem. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of elevating failure to a putative success that, uh, this is right thinking and that, that it's a lesson of some sort. But, but I think that we've stalled out there. We do, mm-hmm. do have a better way to proceed. And, you know, some of my work is an effort to try to point out that, mm-hmm. you know, now the model I propose may not be right, may be wrong, but, at least consider it. It mm-hmm. gives you some reason to have measurement outcomes and to have your quantum probability rule. And so it's, it's a possible way to make progress. And so, you know, there, there's, there's some ideas out there that I think could be stepping stones to more progress if people mm-hmm. kind of, there's a culture of, there's a culture that wants to forestall that, but I think, you know, we can make progress. You're, you're referring to an attitude that I have heard physicists express right here on, on this channel uh, when they begin questioning uh, at the foundational level of physics. They're told, you know, the calculations work, just do the calculations and don't bother yourself with the other details. Uh-huh, right, the shut up and calculate, you know, mm-hmm. idea. And that's just kind of an abdication of the scientific uh, mission. Really, and it's 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 instrumentalism. I mean, it's it's a move to say that theories can never be anything more than uh, instruction manuals or booklets for predicting what we will experience. Mm-hmm. And and there's almost an approach of um, uh, saying that this is the way you should approach it. That this is a, a normative posture, and this is the way you should be working with with physical theory. And in fact, they just haven't. You know, made use of all the tools that are available and, and yeah. they have certain conceptual restrictions like the idea that of actualism, mm. that the only real things are actual things. And so, you know, if we, if we have a little more imagination, we don't have to retreat in, into instrumentalism in mm-hmm. that way. Right. The subtitle of your first book, The Reality of Possibility, mm-hmm. is a very different view than actualism. Right. And I mean, my suggestion is that quantum theory simply is giving us a structure of the world that we weren't expecting. And it, and it's a subtle structure be, beyond the actual manifest world that is that of possibility. And it's not a really new idea. Heisenberg was proposing this, uh, you know, a long time ago. He didn't follow it up, but the idea of potentiality. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that idea out there that, that if we let go of the idea that physical theories can only describe actual phenomenal manifest things, Things, that the theory may be telling us something very interesting about reality. It would seem to me, if I'm struggling to make an important decision in my life, which I have from time to time, as every person has, uh, that that's very much analogous to this um, physical 
situation you describe of moving from possibility to actuality in a quantum system. Right, yes. Uh, the deliberation over possibilities and uh, kind of trying trying to keep your options open and and uh, maybe suspend making that choice until you feel like you're happy with or there are good reasons for choosing something. And all of that is, I think, made much more meaningful if, if we take our theory of fundamental reality as describing that kind of situation mm-hmm. uh, rather than just... Uh, the, the idea that, that all of my choices are illusory because laws dictate whatever it is is going yeah. to happen is just going to happen. You know, I've shared with my viewers and uh, many other occasions one of the most major decisions in my life, a decision, I, as I recall, that goes back to 1972, but is ultimately responsible for you and I being here together in hmm. the video studio now. Uh, I struggled over that decision for months. And then after months of anguish, um, I had this feeling that the answer was going to come to me in a dream. And that night I had a very specific dream that led me to uh, doing what I'm doing now, which is interviewing. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the idea of having intuition, again, this is a very subjective internal kind of process, and it's not part of the traditional physical world. It's not part of the empirical, corroborated world. Mm -hmm. And yet, obviously, it's very real. And I guess what I find intriguing about the idea of quantum theory as being about real possibilities is that, is that our, one of our best physical theories is pointing to, to a deeper level of reality that, that we have internal corroboration of Mm -hmm. that. In other words, that, that makes a a kind of a unifying influence on the inner and outer aspects of of experience mm-hmm. i think and and today i mean since for now for the last century almost simultaneous with the development of quantum physics we had the development of depth psychology freud and and jung who describe in great detail uh what they call the unconscious or the subconscious mind it seems in many ways analogous to the they even use the same metaphor of the iceberg interesting interesting well you know i it could be two sides of the coin you know mm-hmm. we have the sort of the external reality of our five senses yeah. and then there's an internal reality so so that this could be the coin you know mm-hmm. that that the classical physics the traditional mechanistic approach is only describing that one side of the coin, but there's this other side of the coin yeah. that's that's very important. So when you talk about the reality of possibility, and you're referring ultimately to the equations of quantum physics, right. it might apply equally well to the uh, descriptions of the subconscious mind. Now, it might. I mean, of course, what I treat formally in my model mm-hmm. is only that that it's quantified by quantum theory as applied to specific systems that we've already talked about. Yeah. Out in in physics, such as mm-hmm. the hydrogen atom, electron, so they're very specific systems, right. you know. But by by extension, there's nothing to preclude the idea that that at mm-hmm. these subtler levels, that we similarly have right. abstract possibilities that are intuitively. I understand that as a rigorous philosopher, you're not yet prepared to. <laughs> well, I mean, my my model doesn't speak to that. Yeah. So, but it's it's certainly there's no contradiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone could say, well, if quantum theory and and if the relativistic levels of of quantum physics are are pointing to all of this activity that's beneath the surface, then there's there's no reason to shut off the idea of, of our subjective internal intuitions and so on. In fact, as I said, I think in one of our past discussions, if you're if 
if our sort of macroscopic phenomenal world is embedded in some higher reality, some higher dimensional reality, we're kind of like that flatland square mm-hmm. that, that can have internal perceptions that, that are really because he is immersed in some higher, you know, space land or whatever and can be, can be contacted by these other elements, even though at the level of flatland, that would not be empirically valid, mm-hmm. right? So strictly speaking, his fellow flatlanders would, would say, no, look, you had some gut level feeling. Don't tell me you're doing physics here, you mm-hmm. know, but in fact, if, if physics is telling us that he's in a higher dimensional reality, then his experiences may be perfectly compatible with that physical theory. Mm-hmm. Well, Ruth Kastner, once again, a fascinating discussion. Thank, thank you, you so much for being with me. It's been fun. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.